Welcome to The Thinking Traveller. My name is Stuart Barry. For a small country, Portugal certainly punches above its weight. Once a leader in the age of exploration, it is diverse both geographically and historically. Rugged mountains, spectacular coastlines, medieval castles, Roman ruins, elegant cities, all reflecting the depth and breadth of the nation's cultural heritage. Dr. Jenny Ride joins us to discuss this fascinating country. Jenny is a linguist and art history specialist with over 15 years experience leading tours to Portugal. She is passionate about art, design and architecture, both ancient and modern, and particularly enjoys how both complement each other. Jenny holds two undergraduate degrees with majors in anthropology and French and a PhD in Renaissance art history, tourism and museum management. After an early career as an assistant director in film and television, both for the ABC and BBC, she worked as an interpreter and translator, and then as a senior lecturer at Western Sydney University. It's been said that Portugal is the place where the land ends and the sea begins. It is the garden by the sea. So what what makes Portugal so special? Well, first of all, just let me say that that's a quote by a very famous poet, the Portuguese Shakespeare, really. His name is Luís de Camões, and he wrote that in the 16th century, quite an eccentric character. But basically, it's very um, succinct in the way it speaks about uh, Portugal, which is a very beautiful country, very diverse geographically, culturally and historically. And uh, I just think that little quote sums it all up. It's just such a beautiful country. So who were the early settlers? and invaders of Portugal? Uh, there were many early settlers, in fact, all the usual suspects that presented themselves on the Iberian Peninsula, the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians visited, were settled by the Celts, by the Romans, and then by the Moors, and then it became an independent country. But some of the very early prehistoric sites, such as a place just south of Lisbon called Caboesh Fikel, where you can see dinosaur footprints rampaging across the cliff faces. Of course, it was a lagoon at the at the time of the dinosaurs, but now that's up an uplift and you can see these footprints running up the cliffs. There's a fabulous valley of the Coa River, which is a tributary of the Douro River, uh, almost on the border of um, Spain, uh, North Portugal. And this is a valley of about 17 kilometres, which has the most spectacular uh, rock engravings of animals and human figures from the Upper Paleolithic Age onwards. And then there's a wonderful prehistoric site near Évora, quite close to Lisbon, which is older than Stonehenge. Also Celtic villages in the north, Roman towns. And in Lisbon, there's a fantastic centre of the city, which they've discovered many years of these early settlers. Quite spectacular to see. So quite an amazing ancient history and also continuing on. But I suppose for the average person, they look at this little country at the far western tip of the Iberian Peninsula. I mean, why wouldn't Spain have taken over Portugal? Why isn't it part of Spain? Well, how its independence came historically as a split away from well, what was the Iberian Peninsula of currently Spain. So basically, 
Portugal was settled by the Moors from the 8th century onwards, and then the Kingdom of Asturias in the north of um, Spain tried to claw those areas back. So it established a county under a gentleman called Vimara Perez in the 9th century. He was a Christian nobleman from Galicia, and he conquered the, the Moors in that upper section. So that began the first part of the history of what would become Portugal. So it was still annexed to what was the Kingdom of Asturias, one of the kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula, and it later became Portugal as the this uh, little county expanded and then moved southwards and conquered the, the Moors, and then um, Portugal became a nation really in the 13th century. And where did the name come from, Portugal? That's interesting too, because at the mouth of the, the River Douro was a settlement, a Celtic settlement called Kale. And when the Romans arrived there, they also set up a little settlement first at the mouth of the Douro and then a little bit inland where, where the city of Porto is now. And they called that area Portus Carlos. So that then would become later when the first count settled the county of Portus Cale, and that became the name of Portugal eventually. And the Knights Templar were associated with Portugal somehow. What is that connection? Why is it so important? Basically, once the reconquest of the country was taking place, as the, the new king of Portugal, uh, Afonso Henriques, was moving south and conquering the Moors, he needed some assistance. And so he invited this elite, you know, the Knights Templar coming back from Crusades to come to Portugal to help the settlement of the country. So he granted them great tracts of land and they set up their headquarters in a little city called Tomar, which is just uh, north of Lisbon. And so they became really in the forefront of the resettlement and the repopulation of the surrounding region. They built lots of castles and then they're very much in, instrumental in the formation of that nation, along also with the Cistercian, who were also given a charter of land, so that these two bodies, the Knights Templar and the Cistercians, were very important for the resettlement and the population of Portugal. So, Jenny, with the expulsion of the Moors, is that the foundation of the boundary of modern-day Portugal as we know it today? Yes, so the aim of the new king, Afonso Enriquez, the first king, was to then drive out the Moors completely, so that meant gradually moving down from the county of Portugal as it was, it became the kingdom under Afonso Enriquez I, and then gradually capturing cities as he moved southwards. So first Coimbra, then Santarem, then Lisbon against the Moors, getting rid of them there. And then finally in 1249, the reconquest was complete with the conquest of um, a, a town called Faro in the Algarve. At the same time, they were also trying to keep the Spanish at bay and forming that border that we know today. And the reason why Knights Templar were invited was to not only populate the area they were given tracts of land but also to build castles along the border to keep the Spanish out and yes there were some succession crises along the way but basically the formation of that border was as a result of the way those borders were protected and getting rid of the moors down south. I suppose a lot of people probably aren't aware that Portugal was the world's first global empire lasting something like 600 years. How did this occur? How did such a tiny country 
dominate the world? Probably the leadership, I'd say, in this endeavour was due to its geographical location. If you look at the map of the Iberian Peninsula, so Portugal's got a little L-shaped coastline, so extensive access to the Atlantic. So it was facing away really from the classic centres of uh, European civilization and facing west towards the ocean. So it was quite isolated from Mediterranean trade routes facing the Atlantic and Africa and, of course, southwards towards the unknown. Also, Lisbon was a perfect port for the age of exploration and for it to become this empire with its bottleneck mouth in the beginning of the, uh, well, the end of the Tagus River, should I say, and then a big internal basin. So Portugal also has had a long engagement with the sea, so lots of really great seafaring skills, great fishermen. They were involved in the cod fishing campaigns to the Great Banks, so lots of really good navigation skills and maps. The country itself is uh, quite small, lack of natural resources, including good soil. So they were, they needed really new lands to survive, I suppose, and also to flourish. So, so it was Portugal, therefore, not Spain, that exploited that Atlantic potential. Also, Spain was on the rise. You have to remember, too, that Portugal didn't have much other option but to look outwards, really. So we see the beginnings of this age of exploration. And because a key figure in this was Henry the Navigator, who was a, a pioneer, a very visionary in terms of exploration. He was called the Navigator, although he wasn't really a seaman. He never really sailed further than Morocco, but he's really regarded as the main initiator of the age of discovery because of his energy and vision coordinating expansion initiatives. He was also head of the, what well, the Knights Templar became the Order of Christ because of reason to do with heresy charges against the, the, the Knights Templar. They were supported in Portugal. So there was a, a lot of money available from the this order, the Order of Christ. And Henry set up a fabulous navigation or shipbuilding um, school in Sagres in the south. So he got a whole lot of experts together on sailing, shipbuilding, astronomy, navigation techniques, etc., and map making. So this was a really important point for the beginning of the age of exploration, became very, very outward looking, let's say, and very wealthy as a result. Do any legacies remain of this massive empire that it once had? Yes, especially in Lisbon. So there are many monuments which are fabulous to visit, like the Geronimus Monastery, which was the first church for the sailors before they set off. And then became a huge monastery during the reign of King Manuel I, who was the major king, I guess, around that age. There's also a the monument dedicated to the discoveries, which was built much later, of course, but also the Tower of Belém, which is um, quite close to this uh, monastery in the little um, town of Belém, which is about eight kilometres from the centre of Lisbon. And also in some of the museums, you can see some of the artwork that came was brought back from some of the areas of the discoveries from Japan in particular. For example, there's a wonderful museum, Museum of Ancient Art in Lisbon, which has some of these what they call Namban screens, Japanese Namban screens, which are a wonderful document to the arrival of the Portuguese in Japan. So the Portuguese pretty much like the Dutch in that they just trade. They were exploring for trade and not for colonisation. Oh, no, they were, well, for colonisation and missionary activities, they wanted to convert um, the peoples that they, the Indigenous peoples that they met. So we often see missionaries going. So, for example, Francis Xavier, and especially in those Namban screens that I just mentioned, you see these images of these Jesuit missionaries disembarking from the black ships, as they were called, the Portuguese ships arriving in Japan. So it was definitely some colonisation, a little different to the Spanish, I think. Portugal seems to have had a long connection with England 
England. Is, is that a case of England and Spain were always at each other, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or is there some better connection why Portugal and England are so close, or were close? Well, first of all, the main reason for that very early contact was because the first king was poised to attack Lisbon, which was held by the Moors, but he really needed some naval strength and, and found it really quite unexpectedly because the Pope, Pope Eugene III, had decided to preach a new crusade to the Holy Land. And so a fleet bearing crusaders from England were passing by the, the coast of Portugal and they were confronted by a ma massive storm and they had to take shelter in Porto. So the crusaders and their ships were then persuaded to divert their objectives, divert their aims to re reach the Holy Land and to help Afonso Enriquez to besiege Lisbon. They were there for about four months and then the Moors surrendered and the crusaders, many of the crusaders were given land as a result of that. So that was the very first contact with the English and that um, began that um, really historic relationship between England and Portugal, which would later form the what's called the Anglo-Portuguese alliance, which that's why we say that Portugal has a very long connection with England. And of course, that would then continue with port wine trade um, later. So various treaties were signed as a result of that um, link as well. But the original link was that link that the desistance from the Crusaders blown off course. So they're on their way to the Holy Land and they just got diverted to fight the Well, Moors. they got diverted. I think Afonso Enrique said, well, why are you going to go to the Holy Land to kill all of these um, Muslims? You might as well stay here because there's plenty in Lisbon. So why don't you do that? And then we'll give you some land and you can settle here. So that's what they did. <laughs> Save an extra trip. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that opens up that whole thing about the port wine. Now, okay, is port wine, does the name come from a short term of Portugal or is there any connection at all between the name Port Wine and Portugal? The name comes from Port, Portus, because that was the port where the, the, the wine, the port, was brought down in the barrels to be uh, sent overseas to, to England mainly. So, yeah, that's why it's called Port, Port Wine, the wine of the port, let's say. And Porto is the city, of course, which was the port. So that's where it comes Actually, from. Actually, on that, so the two major cities, Lisbon obviously is the capital, Porto in the north. Are they similar size or Porto's a lot smaller than Lisbon? Uh, Lisbon's bigger. So it's the second biggest city. And they have this kind of little rivalry between them. The Lisbonites call the, the people from Porto tripaeros or tripeaters. And the, the people from Porto think that the Lisbonites are all very extravagant and over the top and they call them the lettuce eaters. So this is kind of a little interesting, right? It's a little bit sort of like Sydney and Melbourne. The reason they call them that is because the people in Lisbon had these market gardens outside the city where they grew lots of lettuces. So they're the lettuce eaters. And in Porto, the people who were supplying the trading ships and so forth would give the best parts of the meat to the to the sailors and they would be left with tripe. And so they were the tripe eaters. So that's where those those two names come from. <laughs> I don't know which is the more offensive, tripe eater or lettuce eater, but anyway. See. <laughs> um, so why did port wine become such an important beverage? Mainly because um, conflicts with France and uh, between France and England deprived English wine drinkers of French wine. So they were looking for something else. So in the 1670s, it's said that a Liverpool wine merchant sent two reps into Porto 
or north of Porto to look and learn about the wine trade because they knew that um, wine was grown and these, these areas have been growing there. In fact, Portugal's first trade agreement with England was signed in 1373 for wine exchange. So these two reps went up the, the Douro and they met an abbot in Lamego, which is a town halfway up the Douro, and he had offered them this kind of sweet, smooth wine which he'd fortified with a distilled spirit called aguardente, which is like brandy. So they thought this was delicious and that this would be uh, very popular back home. So they bought the whole lot of his wine and they shipped it home. And so they recognized then that this was um, a perfect beverage because the wine would probably appeal to an English palate and it would also survive the travel because of the addition of the spirit. And so this wine is fortified with um, this aguardente during the fermentation and not after. So it this became very successful on the English market. You know, the fortification method preserved the wines for the, for the sea journey. And the port still produced this way, by the way. So the first shipments of wine under the name of port, because that's where the wine was shipped to, to be shipped to England, to Porto, the city, in 1678. And then in 1703, the Methuen Treaty regulated this trade. And then in 1761, there was the first demarcated map, the earliest demarcation area in Europe, in fact. The actual language Portuguese, again, you've, you've got this tight, small country right next to Spain, but you've got completely different language. How did that evolve, the Portuguese language? Uh, the Portuguese languages are related to the Galician dialect called Gallego, which derives from basically vulgar Latin, really. So that was a stronger dialect. When the Romans were there, the vulgare or Latin substituted the local native languages. And then you get a kind of a mixture of Celtic and Latin and you get this um, a language called Portuguese really. So it's one of the most spoken languages in the world, actually. So most people don't realise that. I think there are about 236 million people who speak Portuguese worldwide. It's the official language of nine countries, and it's the sixth most spoken first language in the world. Wow. I know I always get confused as South American countries, which one speaks Spanish, and which one speaks Portuguese. But yeah. oh, Brazil speaks Portuguese, <laughs> yeah. Angola, so. Mozambique, you know, so many, many places. So right. some really interesting. Is it true that Portugal is one of the largest producers of cork in the world? Oh, yes, uh, definitely. Half of the world's cork comes from Portugal. So and it's its 16th most important export. Big consumer markets are mainly the UK, the US and um, Germany. So about 70% of the total production of cork in Portugal goes to those three three countries. Uh, it's especially grown in an area quite close to Lisbon in the, the, the next region, which is called the Alentejo or beyond the Tagus River, that means. And here, as soon as you hit that region, you're just driving through these amazing cork forests. They're called montados that have produced cork for, for many thousands of years so far. So it's a very interesting industry. And it, it, what you see as you're driving, sorry, is these trees which have got orange trunks. That's when the tree has been stripped of its bark and they don't get damaged. Is it particular to Portugal because of the climate needed for the cork trees? Well, why, or is it just traditionally this industry that's been there and they've dominated the, the world's 
market for cork? It's it's the climate and also because the trees are native to that area. Like in, also in Sardinia in the north, you get cork forests as well, but nothing like the ones you get in Portugal. Basically very hot and very dry, the Alentejo region, especially in the summertime. And so that tree's just been exploited really in terms of the abilities to survive and also deliver just such a great uh, product. Okay, so there's special laws in Portugal in cork production and, and cork trees. So first of all, the law prohibits the stripping of the trees more than once every nine years, which is why when you're driving around the country and you see the orange colour of the trunks of the trees, that you know when the next time is it can be stripped. So you'll see this white number on each tree. Also, the law says that trees can only be harvested once the tree reaches 25 years old so can't be stripped before that a cork oak will last will survive i suppose for about 200 years and then will probably be able to be stripped about 18 times in that um in that period so it's a really interesting product are they expanding the forests of the cork trees or is this just the fact that these are the long established farms plantations and this is where the cork is coming from no, they're always expanding and they're always replanting because, as I said, the, the, the tree lasts for 200 years. When I visited one of the oldest ones in the south, near Tubal, that was about two, just 200 years old and they weren't stripping it any longer. And so you can see, you know, new, new trees being planted just to make sure that the industry survives. Big industry now in terms of not just um, corks, but also it's used in aerospace, the aerospace industries. And it's also used everywhere you go. You see cork sandals, cork um, mats, cork handbags, cork uh, spectacle frames, everything that you can think of is made of cork. It's amazing. Lisbon had a massive earthquake in the 18th century. certainly did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what effects did that have on the city and how do we see that today? Well, the whole of the, the city of Lisbon was uh, decimated. It actually occurred on All Saints Day, so when there were many candles burning in churches, and so it, it generated a lot of fires and so great destruction in the city. So what we see today in Lisbon is a remodelling of the city in a kind of a grid plan. I mentioned before Tomar, the uh, the Knights Templar city, that had a little grid plan that was set up there. And so the Prime Minister of Portugal at the time, uh, the Marquis de Pombal, devised a grid plan uh, for the city centre. So you can see now, this, rather than higgledy-piggledy streets, as it was, you see this very uh, grid-like pattern to the, to the city itself. So it was important also, this was probably some of the first studies of seismic activity took place after that as a result of the Marquis de Pombal's ideas. And in one of the archaeological sites, you can see when you go down underneath the city itself, you can see one of the structures that he and his engineers invented called the Pombal Cage, which was an anti-seismic structure that then got used across Europe in, in various cities. The other thing that you see in Lisbon, which is interesting for the architecture, is that we see a style of tile called the pombaline tile, which was which was a much more practical way of covering uh, buildings than the older tiles, which were more decorative. So this was a, a, a tile to 
to serve a, an architectural purpose for the structure also of the, the exteriors of buildings. Well, this leads into, because I know you've got a, almost a love affair with the tiles of Portugal. Why are they so unique and why are they so important to Portugal? That dates back to Manuel I, the king I was talking about, who was a king at the time of the beginning of the Age of Exploration. He visited the city of Sevilla in, in Spain, as it was, and also Granada, and fell in love with the tiles that he saw there, which were still being made by Moorish craftsmen working under the Christians. And he decided he wanted them to decorate his palace in Sintra, which is in the hills outside Lisbon. So he had thousands of tiles made and imported to that palace, the National Palace of Sintra. And he, as a result of that, then everybody else wanted to copy him. So we started to see the import of tiles. That was at the very beginning. And then over the centuries, that just increased, especially when they managed to acquire the ideas, I guess you could say, from the Ming dynasty during the age of exploration. So the blue and white tile begins to enter Portugal and we just see this complete love affair develop with tiles. Where in Portugal is the best is the centre of the tile industry or is there not one centre? And where's the best place to go and see some great examples of tiles? Uh, you can see great examples of tiles everywhere in Portugal. Lisbon, I guess, is probably... Elizabeth and Porto, you see wonderful tile tableaus on the exterior of churches. You see them used uh, quite prosaically, as I said, on the facades of houses, in bars, cafes, you name it, they're everywhere. Lisbon's fantastic too because of the metro system in Lisbon. If you go travel on the metro, every station has a different tile artist decorated the, the metro stations with fabulous examples of streetscapes, wonderful modern displays of contemporary tiles. There's a fantastic tile museum in Lisbon to visit, um, definitely a must on anybody's to-do list for, for Lisbon, where they show you the whole history of tile making, wonderful examples from various uh, buildings which were destroyed. And in fact, that tile museum has one of the best tile panels that you can see of Lisbon as it was before the earthquake. It's like a 25-metre tile panel showing what Lisbon looked like before the earthquake and it wasn't destroyed so it's a fabulous document to, to see what the city might have looked like before it was destroyed. I don't think many people are aware that Portugal actually suffered under the longest dictatorship in European history. Mm. First of all how did the dictatorship come out and how did it end? Well the dictatorship really began I guess with the problems around what was called the First Republic. So it was very unstable. It was just a republic against the previous dynasties. So there had been, in the First Republic, there were something like nine presidents and, I don't know, 44 ministries. And so there was a military coup in 1926, which uh, brought to power finally Salazar became the finance minister and then he became the prime minister so that led to this very long period of this dictatorship until 1974 when the second military coup occurred when this time the military were for the people not against the people 
it was called the Carnation Revolution. That was in 1974, wasn't it? So why yes, was it called the Carnation Revolution? Uh, well, that's quite interesting. It was called that because it was a peaceful revolution. There was no nobody hurt and no shots fired, in fact. And the soldiers put carnations in the gun muzzles to, to celebrate this coup. And the reason for that was because the area that this occurred in, the, the where the coup took place, was a place called the... Um, Carmo Square and just close to the Carmo Square there was a a restaurant which had actually opened on the 25th of April in 1973 so the Carnation Revolution happened on the 25th of April in 1974 so this restaurant was going to celebrate the first year of their opening but of course they couldn't because of the the coup but the owner had ordered all of these carnations in to celebrate that year. So instead of being able to celebrate in the restaurant, he gave all the carnations to one of the waitresses who then went out into the square and gave carnations to all of the soldiers who put them into their guns. And that's why it's called the Carnation Revolution. And every 25th of April, there's lots of carnations to buy and you see carnations all over the city. So that's the reason it's called the Carnation Revolution, a peaceful revolution with no shots fired and this lady who gave them all carnations. Wow. And it's the 25th of April, Anzac Day that you put on. It's the 25th of April, yes. So there's a bridge also that was called the um, Salazar Bridge, which is close to the mouth of the Tagus. And uh, that was used to be called the Salazar Bridge, and it's now called the 25th of April Bridge. It's one of the two large bridges that cross the, the, um, the Tagus. Was Salazar still a dictator? In 1974, the Carnation Revolution, or had he passed away and someone else had taken uh, over? No, he'd had a stroke in 1968, which incapacitated him. And um, so he was replaced by the Prime Minister then, Marcelo Caetano. And he was the one that was uh, the Prime Minister at the, at, the, at the point of the coup. In fact, he was hiding in that square that I talked about, Carmo Square, and the army surrounded it and he had to cede power. But Salazar had died in 1970, actually, after a stroke. So Caetano didn't last very long, really. So Spain has its flamenco, which we all know, but Portugal has a completely different musical tradition. What is it? It's called fado, which is uh, an interesting uh, musical genre. So its origin within the 1800s, really, it's become the music of the country, so I suppose probably songs from the days of um, exploration. So fado means fate. Um, it comes from the Latin word for fate. And it's kind of a, all about nostalgia, about you know sailors leaving, songs of love and loss and uh, hopefulness and resignation, I guess. So it's sung along all of the waterfronts and was in, in alleyways and taverns. And so when you are in Lisbon or Porto or in Coimbra, you hear these songs being sung all the time. They they sound a bit depressing, <laughs> but actually it's really fantastic music. There's some, there are some happy little songs too, but so they, there's a word in Portuguese, saudade, which means, it's hard to translate into English, but it means 
kind of nostalgia. So nostalgia for times past, I guess. But it's interesting too, because each of the cities has its own um, style of fado. For example, in Coimbra, which is the um, big university town, only the men can sing and they have to be dressed up in their university gowns and their trencher hats to sing it. Porto's got a slightly different version as well. So it's quite interesting to hear the music. You can just pop into any bar and you'll hear someone will jump up and with a 12-string Portuguese guitar and play play a song. And I've got to ask you, because it's one of my favourites. So do Portuguese cassettes really come from Portugal? Yes, they do. Yes, the, the Portuguese tart, the best Portuguese tart that you can buy is in uh, what's called the, which was an old flour mill and became this factory of um, uh, Portuguese um, custard tarts um, because the monks used to use the egg whites to starch um, their collars and so forth. And so what was left over, then they used to make into these all sorts of different kinds of cakes. And uh, so there's this recipe for it, which was then passed down and is made in Lisbon. They're the best ones you could ever have. I never had a better one. They're just, the pastry is sensational. Just fantastic. (laughs) I'm always on the search for the perfect custard tart. So I'm going to have to go to Portugal. Definitely, definitely. I understand that Portugal is also a world leader in renewable resources. Again, for a very small country, how does it achieve that? Well, it's um, domestic primary energy production is almost only based on renewable energy sources, such as wind, hydro, solar, or wave power. In 2021, actually, so the last um, stats that I've got for that, the renewables produced about 78.4% of the electricity in mainland Portugal, which is pretty amazing. Um, One of the world's largest photovoltaic farms in the southeast Portugal at a place called Moura, and they have uh, floating wind farms, Um, and also wave rollers converting energy using the movement of waves. So it's quite um, quite a very innovative people, the the, the Portuguese. And the universities are a department set up particularly to assist people to set up their own little businesses with really interesting inventions. So you get very innovative ideas. I suppose now that tourism is returning, Portugal seems to be more on everyone's bucket list, whereas in the past it may have been ignored a bit. Are you seeing large numbers returning to Portugal? Well, from what I can hear from my guys, because I haven't been yet, of course, because I've not been able to, there are definitely many more people coming to to the country. But the great thing about Portugal is usually, I suppose, Lisbon and Porto are the the centres that people go for, but there's so many other areas to visit, um, which, and you could just be completely on your own as a tourist wandering around some of these really spectacular sites, all of which have got really fabulous things to see, not to mention the, 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 the landscape itself, their lands, the landscapes and the seascapes are, uh, are spectacular in Portugal, just for this small country of 10 million people, got such a great variety of yeah, rugged mountains, great coastlines, great castles, about 500 castles put together in a small, small country like Portugal, I can't believe that, um, lots of elegant cities and sophisticated it's very sophisticated very a lovely people too it's a great country to visit all right i'm ready to pack my bags and go jenny thank you so very much for your time we look forward to catch up with you soon a great pleasure Stuart, and i'm looking forward to having people come with me so that i can show them all of these um, spectacular places 